This is Echo Zoe Radio, episode 49 for May 2012, with guest Kevin Bowder on the subject of evangelicalism. Welcome to Echo Zoe Radio. I'm your host, Andy Olson, proprietor of EchoZoe.com. Thanks for listening. This is episode 49 for May 2012. For this episode, I'm joined in studio by Dr. Kevin Bowder of Central Seminary right here in the Twin Cities. Our topic of discussion is evangelicalism. Dr. Bowder contributed to a book entitled Four Views on the Spectrum of Evangelicalism, which is in the Counterpoint series by Zondervan. Kevin represents the fundamentalist view of evangelicalism. Kevin is research professor of systematic and historical theology at Central Baptist Theological Seminary. He served as president of Central Seminary from 2003 to 2011 and is general editor of One Bible Only, examining exclusive claims for the King James Bible. Dr. Bowder is a guest I've had in mind to interview for quite some time. I met him at our local squadron of the Civil Air Patrol, where I'm a senior member and a pilot, and Kevin serves as chaplain. It's always a treat to sit in on a squadron meeting that he leads. If you'd like to know what you can do to support Echo Zoe, please check out echozoe.com support. There are several things listed there that you can do to help Echo Zoe, such as prayer, recommending the podcast and website to friends, or using our affiliate links when shopping online. You can find the show notes for this episode at echozoe.com slash 49. There you'll find an outline of the discussion, additional resources, and scriptures referenced, as well as links to get connected to Echo Zoe on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. You'll also find a link to our email alert system, where you can sign up to get an email every time a new episode is posted. With that said, here's my interview with Kevin Bowder. Welcome, Kevin. Uh, it's great to have you here to guest on Echo Zoe Radio. It's good to be here, Andy. So tonight we're going to talk about, you contributed to a book, or views of the spectrum of evangelicalism. Right. We're going to talk a bit about the book in general we'll start with, but for the most part we're going to talk about your view, and you're representing fundamentalism. I'm one of those dinosaurs. <laughs> one of yes. those guys. So I want to just kind of jump in. The book overall aims to explain four different views of evangelicalism. And while you wrote the essay on fundamentalism, uh, there were three other essays. Al Mohler was one of the contributors. Right. Uh, confessional evangelicalism. John Stackhouse, whom I'd never heard of, by the way, uh, wrote about generic evangelicalism. And then Roger Olson wrote about what he called post-conservative evangelicalism. Yeah, it's not quite fair to say that he called it that. The uh, The labels were supplied by the editors, and I actually uh, think I'm probably the only guy who was happy with my label. <laughs> really? Yeah. Okay. So I, I wanted to start off, because I don't have those other three guys here to talk about their views, uh, just ask you to briefly describe what their other views are. And there's kind of a, you know, the book aptly calls it a spectrum, and you're on one side of the spectrum, and Roger Olson's on the other side of the spectrum. So I, I'd like to start with Roger Olson and kind of work back towards your view. How would you briefly describe post-conservative evangelicalism? Well, it's, it's worth saying uh, that the editors, in their conclusion, argue that really the four views that are represented in the book end up 
with yeah. with two, two groups views, of two yeah. views each. Uh, and and the editors don't really see much difference between the two big picture views. I think there are differences that can be ironed yeah, out there. To some degree, I came to that conclusion too, reading through the book. You know, I very much agreed with a lot of the stuff you said, and I also agreed a lot with Al Mohler too. Uh, Al, Al and I have actually continued the conversation since then. There, there are genuine differences between us, mm-hmm. but I think both of us want to be careful that we don't overstate those differences. Roger and John both represent versions of what you could call big tent evangelicalism. And I, I don't want to make it sound as if by big tent evangelicalism, that means that there shouldn't be any boundaries. Both of those men argue that there are, are boundaries to evangelicalism. But Roger, in particular, is concerned to look at evangelicalism as a movement and particularly as a social phenomenon, whereas uh, I, at the opposite extreme, are looking. At, I, I'm looking at evangelicalism more specifically as a theological phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And so, in a certain sense, we're almost not even talking about the same thing. Uh, he's looking at the evangelical movement, the the empirical movement that exists. And basically, he's saying, you know, if if we take everybody's word for it, who calls themselves an evangelical, then it becomes very difficult to articulate specific and narrow boundaries. Now, there are some pretty big picture boundaries that he's definitely willing to articulate, but they're going to be much broader than the boundaries that Al or I would prefer to see for evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and Roger uses the analogy of a big tent. He wants big tent evangelicalism. He wants it to be a very broad movement. I think Al Mohler, like I said, we're kind of going in a reverse order of the book. Al Mohler was second in, in the essays, and he introduced this idea of bound, centered, and center-bound, and, and describes like what he means by that. It's kind of a mathematical term. Sure. But uh, Roger Olson was definitely a centered kind of guy. He's, he, in fact, Olson and Stackhouse are both centered set guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you can imagine, you know, a rubber band that's fastened on one end and you, you can pull it away from, from the fastening point, it's stretchable. And, you know, how long is the rubber band? Well, it depends on how far you stretch it. Mm-hmm. Now, I think what Al would say, and, and th- this is the way that both, both uh, Roger and John are looking at evangelicalism. You can stretch the rubber band. I think what Al would say is, yes, you can stretch the rubber band, but you come to a point where the rubber band actually breaks. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that's really a boundary. You can't stretch the definition of evangelicalism any further than that. Uh, Roger, I don't think, is going to want to go there, at least not in the long run. Not, n- not that he isn't willing to draw some boundaries out there, mm-hmm. but uh, there, he's going to focus on the, the common core of evangelicalism. So is John. Mm-hmm. There's... Uh I think a great example of where the controversy comes in with that was the discussion of open theism, which seemed to be kind of a common thread. The, the editor must have introduced the, the, the that. The editors asked us to address specific questions in, and to apply our understanding of evangelicalism to those questions. Um, open theism was one of those questions. Um, the, the whole business of rapprochement with um, Roman Catholicism was another one of those questions. Uh, inerrancy was one of the questions. So yeah. we, we all had to try to tackle those one way or the other. Then John Stackhouse's view, I would, he calls it, or the editor calls it, generic evangelicalism. And like you said, they, he's also a big tent guy, but how would he be maybe different than 
Roger Olson? There are a lot of people asking that question. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not completely sure that I can answer it. I can tell you, though, one factor that I very much appreciated about Stackhouse's presentation, and that is that he emphasized that Christianity is not merely a doctrinal phenomenon. Of course, he's not going to say it isn't doctrinal, Mm -hmm. but he emphasized that, that in addition to doctrine, Christianity is a matter of practice, it's a matter of obedience, and then, then he uh, emphasized that Christianity is also a matter of affection, of right feelings toward God. And I think that's a very important insight to grasp. Yeah, he used that term um, ortho, I mean, orthopathy. orthodoxy orthopathy. and orthopraxy, and he introduced orthopathy. Right. Yeah, I never heard that term before. That was, but I think even you pointed out in your in your response that that was a it was a, a good idea to bring into the discussion. I think it is. I, I think it is. Although. That's not going to be the point of difference between any of the four of us. I think we're all going to agree that, yes, Christianity has to include not only doctrines, but also practices and right feelings toward God. The question is going to be which feelings are the right feelings and which ones are the wrong ones, which practices are the right ones and which are the wrong ones, and ultimately, which doctrines are the right ones and which are the wrong ones. Mm -hmm. I tended to tackle more the doctrinal questions because they're more obvious and I think more objective. When you start talking about feelings, in the nature of the case, it becomes a pretty subjective yeah. kind of conversation. Yeah. And then now we're getting into the other camp, so to speak, Al Mohler with confessional. Al definitely wants boundaries. Uh, you, you can see that. He's, he's a man who has had a large role in essentially excluding some professing Christians, first from Southern Baptist Seminary, and then in the long run from the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, he believes that the gospel sets boundaries and that you you can't or shouldn't, as a Christian and as an evangelical, make common cause with people who transgress those boundaries. And so he, as as president of Southern Baptist Seminary, basically, not, not to put too fine a point on it, I mean, he fired a whole faculty. And... Um, that that's a very fundamentalistic kind of thing to do. Uh, so at that level, we would have a lot in common, which, of course, is one of the things that Roger loves to point out. <laughs> he would like for everybody to believe that uh, Al Mohler is a fundamentalist and nothing yeah. but a fundamentalist. I think uh, he said as much in his response. And and he says it regularly. Yeah. I I think it's a little more nuanced than that. I think there's more to fundamentalism than simply what Al represents. But certainly what he represents is vital to fundamentalism. One other interesting dynamic that uh, took place here, I don't know if you're familiar with the Manhattan Declaration. A little bit. It it came out, what's it been, three years ago now, something like that, four years ago perhaps. Very controversial. It was very controversial. It, It was a joint evangelical Catholic declaration having to do mainly with Christian perspectives on social issues that we're facing today, political issues. And uh, Moeller was a signatory to to that uh, document. I was kind of surprised. I don't, yeah, he, I don't know Moeller really well, but I was still I was surprised. Well, it surprised a lot of people. Fundamentalists, many fundamentalists were highly critical of him. Even many evangelicals were critical of his affixing his signature to the document. One of the things that in, that is interesting about his chapter in this book is that he backs away now 
from the whole Manhattan Declaration. He basically says, you know, I signed it because I wanted to take a stand on the political and social issues, but in retrospect, it, uh, you know, my, my signature there did obscure the gospel. And to, to me, it's, it's an amazing statement about the man's integrity that he would be willing to uh, come out and say this kind of thing in public, basically mm-hmm. saying he made a mistake, uh, which, which makes him, you know, an interesting and refreshing person to work with. Yeah. I noticed that you, well, first of all, I noticed in the book, like when they put the title on your essay, um, you represented fundamentalism, not fundamentalist evangelicalism. And even in this discussion, you've, you've kind of used fundamentalism and evangelicalism almost as, I don't want to say mutually exclusive, but definitely separate. Is that fair to say? I, there are different fundamentalists will answer that question differently. The way that I would answer it is to say that evangelicalism is the broader category and that fundamentalism is a subset at one end of evangelicalism. Sure. Uh, there are fundamentalists who would say that, no, fundamentalism is not part of evangelicalism at all. It's a separate thing. And interestingly enough, clear on the other end of the spectrum, I, I think it's fair to say that Roger Olson would uh, say, you know, fundamentalism isn't really part of the evangelical movement. It's gone its own way. Well, I ask that because, you know, the others definitely are presented as subsets of evangelicalism. That's kind of how everybody is. I mean, that's the whole purpose of the book. Let's take four different subsets of this movement and describe how you see the movement. And, but I just thought it was interesting that the others were described, had evangelicalism in their essay title, whereas yours was just fundamental. Yeah, I'm, I'm perfectly willing to be called an evangelical not in the sense I'm not really a member of the evangelical party. I don't have <laughs> I don't have the membership card, but in the sense of being gospel centered, gospel focused, sure. I, I think fundamentalism is very much that. And at least many of us do regard ourselves as as sharing a good measure of kinship, particularly with the people on the very conservative end of the mm. evangelical spectrum: the Al Mohlers, the Mark Devers, the Phil Johnsons. Uh, we see a lot of commonality with those people. In fact, more commonality with them than uh, we actually think that we have with some other fundamentalists. Yeah, interesting. And that leads me to my next uh, question I had, uh, which we're going to get into your view now. I want to spend the remainder of our time discussing your view, which is fundamentalism. And this is a term that evokes a lot of emotion within Christian, both within Christianity and in the population in general. Sure. You know, of course, there's a lot of baggage that comes with the term. The media likes to pile and that more up baggage and, all the time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, as a self-professing fundamentalist, could you give us an insider's view of what it means to be a fundamentalist, at least from your point of view? Well, they, for, first, as as far as the label is concerned, no fundamentalist today is really happy with the label. We, <laughs> we'd love to have something else to go to. The problem is we can't come up with something else. <laughs> Uh, nothing, you know, I suggested maybe paleo-evangelical. Well, I think there's <laughs> one guy out there who uses that. Uh, retro-evangelical, essentialist, uh, nothing, nothing else seems to work. Uh, so we're kind of stuck with it for the moment, tr- trying to explain that, yes, we're fundamentalists, but we don't wear turbans, and <laughs> typically we don't carry AK-47s, and we certainly don't go around blowing things up. Uh, you know, those, those aren't us. When we talk about fundamentalism, at least in terms of historic mainstream fundamentalism, what we're primarily talking about is an attitude toward the gospel. 
part of that attitude is shared with, I would say, all genuine evangelicals. Part of the attitude is not. Actually, the, the name fundamentalism was coined in 1920. There was a fight going on in the Northern Baptist Convention because people had just discovered that the convention, which was founded in 1907, people had just discovered that the convention was really dominated by people who denied the gospel, by theological liberals. And and bunches of them were extremely alarmed by this, and, and they were determined to end the influence of theological liberalism within the convention. So in 1920, they planned a big pre-convention meeting and then they went into the, the Northern Baptist Convention that year. Now it's called the American Baptist Churches in the USA. They went into the Northern Baptist Convention that year intending to do what they could to begin evicting the liberals from the convention. In, in the belief that if you really are committed to the gospel, you can't pretend to have Christian fellowship with people who deny the gospel. Mm. I mean, that's, that's that really the hard, that's the issue right mm. there. Is that kind of what's going on with Southern Baptists and with Al Mohler? Oh, it's it's very much the same thing that's going on. In fact, in a certain sense, uh, over the last 20, 25 years, the Southern Baptists have replayed the same fight that took place in the Northern Baptist Convention with this difference. In the Southern Baptist Convention, the conservatives won. In, In the Northern Baptist Convention, the liberals had control of the thing from the very beginning, and there was never a mechanism to get them out. So anyway, after the 1920 convention, there there was a, an editor, newspaper writer, religious newspaper writer, Curtis Lee Laws, uh, published a paper called The Watchman Examiner. And in that paper, he did an editorial asking, who are these people? Uh, you know, the, who all of a sudden show up and they're trying to get rid of the liberals. They're trying to vote them out of the convention. Uh, and he went through a whole list of names. Should we call them conservatives? Should we call them landmarkers? Should, you know, should we call them this? Should we call them that? And he found a problem with every name. And so at the, at the end of the article, he said, it sounds like we need a new name. Uh, so he said, I suggest that those who still cling to the great fundamentals of the faith and who mean to do battle royal for the fundamentals shall be called fundamentalists. Mm. Uh, so essentially what he did is to articulate a genus and a differentia as the definition for his name. The genus is those who mean, uh, those who still cling to the great fundamentals. Mm -hmm. Uh, A fundamental doctrine is simply a doctrine that is essential to the gospel. Mm -hmm. If if you deny a fundamental, at least implicitly, you are denying the gospel itself. So to, to talk about those who still cling to the great fundamentals, he was saying to be a fundamentalist, you've got to be a gospel believer which I would say is true of all evangelicals. If you don't believe the gospel, you're not an evangelical. But then the differentia... To some degree, even Roger Olson had uh, kind of said that that's that's a fair comment to me. Sure, sure. Um, I I think that's, that's a point that all four of us in the book would say. Evangelicalism is about the gospel, and it's about belief in the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Olson would even say that he thinks we have to have fundamentals and we have to treat them as important. Some of the discussion is going to be over what, const- what, what are the fundamentals yeah. and what constitutes a denial of a fundamental. Right. That's um, where the open theism and the... Uh, open theism, inerrancy, inerrancy, Roman Catholicism, you know, the whole, the whole question of justification through faith alone... You know, how fundamental are these things? Mm-hmm. That's, that's part of the big discussion these days, yeah. yeah. Um, but Law's differentia was 
those who mean to do battle royal for the fundamentals. In other words, if if you're a fundamentalist, you don't just believe the fundamentals, but you are committed to what I will call an attitude of ecclesiastical non-cooperation with people who deny the gospel. You, You can't have Christian fellowship with somebody who's not a Christian, and a person who denies the gospel should never be called a Christian. That's really the heart of fundamentalism right there. Well, that leads right into uh, the, the first kind of point, the first major point you made in your essay, which was uh, you bring up this idea of minimal Christian fellowship, and you define minimal Christian fellowship. Can you define that for us? Yeah, what, what I would say is this. If you think of Christianity as a circle, there are those who are inside the circle, Christians, there are others who are outside the circle, non-Christians. If you ask the question, what is the boundary? What, what is the circle itself? What is the edge of the circle? My answer to that question is, it's the gospel. Those, Of course, we can't see hearts. Right. We don't know who really believes the gospel and who actually doesn't believe the gospel. Right. We don't deal in hearts. It's up to God to deal with, mm-hmm. with whether, a person profe- whether a person possesses true faith or not. What we can deal with, and Scripture does require us to deal with, is the question of who professes the true gospel. If a person doesn't profess the true gospel, that is to say if a person denies the gospel, then there's no way that they should be recognized as a Christian. Mm -hmm. They, They shouldn't be treated as if they are inside the circle if what they say is that they deny the gospel, which puts them outside the circle. So minimal Christian fellowship occurs among those who profess the true gospel, who actually hold the truths of the gospel together. And that's something uh, like fruit inspection. Jesus talked about by the fruits you shall know them. To to a degree, yes. And and this comes in into the notion that we were talking about earlier. Christianity isn't just doctrine; it's also obedience and its affection, yeah, yeah. Ortho, orthopraxy, orthopathy. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if somebody claims to believe the gospel and, and has all the right words, mm-hmm. and yet they live a life that is scandalous, then their life is actually contradicting the gospel. This, this is what 1 Corinthians 5 is all about. Uh, you know, this, this guy in 1 Corinthians 5 who is apparently sleeping with his father's wife and, and, Paul is saying, no, you can't keep that guy in the church. <laughs> well, why not? Because his conduct denies the gospel. And, and Paul lists a whole series of other modes of conduct that deny the gospel as well. So, yeah, we take account not just of what people say, but of how people live. But at minimum, we take account of what they say. Sure. It doesn't matter how, how virtuous their life seems to be. If they're denying the gospel, we still don't recognize them as a Christian, or at least shouldn't. So this, this is minimal Christian fellowship. If, if a person affirms the gospel, the true gospel, the biblical gospel, says they believe it, and their life doesn't contradict what they say, then I think we are obligated to recognize that person as a brother or sister in Jesus Christ and to recognize that because we are brothers and sisters, there is actually a great deal that we hold in common. Not just our profession, but we are sheep in the one flock that's in uh, John chapter 10. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are parts of the one body that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We we have been tied together in Jesus Christ, and we can't deny that 
without doing a disservice to the gospel. So there, there is genuine fellowship at some, at some level, even a minimal level, between all individuals who genuinely profess the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. What would you describe as those fundamental, uh, essential doctrines that, that you would want to see in someone before you're willing to extend fellowship as a brother? There are two ways of asking the question. One is to ask, what does a person minimally need to profess in order to be professing saving faith? The other is to ask, what would a person need to deny in order to be denying the gospel? Those aren't the same question. Right. Okay, normally you, you would expect a consciousness of sin, a consciousness of God's, of being deserving of God's wrath, a recognition of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, of, of his substitution, and a profession of personal faith in Christ um, in order to secure the gift of salvation. You, you could expand on those things, but mm-hmm. at, at minimum, just as a, a shorthand way of expressing it, those, those are the things that you would say. But there, there's so much more to the gospel than just that shorthand expression. The, the Apostle Paul, I think, intends to give us a formal summary of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. And when he does that, the way he summarizes the gospel, and he, he makes the point, this is the gospel that we preached to you, it's the gospel that you received, it's the gospel by which you are saved if you stand in it. It's, it's, Paul is saying, this is the gospel. And he articulates it in two points. Each of those points is connected to evidence. Point one, Christ died for our sins. How do we know that he died? Well, he was buried. Mm-hmm. Second, Christ rose again from the dead. How do we know that he rose from the dead? Well, he was seen by all these witnesses. So we've got these two parts to the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was raised again from the dead. Mm-hmm. In, in its core form, that's the gospel. But when you start thinking about it, so much more is necessary to those statements. Christ died for my sins. Well, that assumes something about me. Mm-hmm. It assumes that I have sins. You have to have sins, yeah. Not only that, it assumes that I couldn't do anything about my sins. Because if I could have, Christ didn't have to die. Right. It, it assumes that Christ's death was not like the death of any other man. He died as my sin bearer. So we have to ask, what does it take to be a sin bearer? Well, as we begin to explore scripture to answer that question, we discover that if you're, if you're going to be a sin bearer, you've got to meet two qualifications. First, you have to be a human being identified with the race for which you are suffering and dying. Secondly, you have to be an infinite person who can bear the infinite wrath of God for the infinite guilt of humankind. Mm-hmm. So where are we going to find an infinite person? There's only one, right? God. So our sin bearer has to be God, but he also has to be one of us. You've got to have a doctrine of the deity of Christ. You've also got to have a doctrine of the humanity of Christ. You've got to have a theanthropic person. If you ask, how can we get a theanthropic person? The only answer is the virgin birth. So if you deny the virgin birth, implicitly you're denying the gospel itself. You've got a whole list of things that come out of this simple affirmation that Paul describes. Right that are all essential to what he says. If you deny any of those things, effectively you're denying the gospel itself. And this is something that like a new believer wouldn't necessarily have to put two and two together on this the day he becomes saved. 
but eventually he should come to the realization that this is an important part of the gospel that he's professing to. Yeah, that's why I drew the distinction a while ago. There are some things that you have to know and believe in order to be saved. Mm -hmm. There are other things you may not know about. In, in, in fact, most people won't know about them. How, how many brand new believers can talk about a theanthropic person? Uh, maybe <laughs> right. they don't know anything about a virgin or birth of Christ. Union. <laughs> a hypostatic union. What's yeah. that? Doctrine of a trinity? You know, what's a trinity? Mm-hmm. They don't need to know all of those things in order to be saved. But what they're believing when they are saved implies all those things or rests upon all those things. And so when it eventually will lead them to those things. Exactly. In one way or another. Exactly. If when they find out about those things, they, they reject them. If you've got somebody who says, I believe the gospel, but I don't believe in the virgin birth, that lets you know they don't really believe in the gospel. Mm-hmm. Now, again, I'm not judging. I don't think we can judge in their heart of hearts what they're trusting for salvation. People have a marvelous capacity for inconsistency in their intellectual <laughs> systems. And and God isn't going to judge our intellect. He's not going to allow us into heaven or not on the basis of our intellectual system. He's going to allow, allow us into heaven or not on the basis of whether we've trusted his son, Jesus Christ. But since we can't see the heart, all we can rely on is what the person says. And if he says, I don't believe in the virgin birth of Christ, then we've got to say he really doesn't believe in the gospel. Because without a virgin birth, you can't have a gospel. Now, maybe he just hasn't figured out the connection, and we can be patient with him. We can try to teach him and explain it to him. But once he understands the issues, if he still denies it, then I think we have to treat him as a person who denies the gospel, which means we can't recognize him as a Christian at that point. Someone we can pray for and Certainly, continue, continue to, to witness and, to, yep. continue to counsel. It doesn't mean that we can't be his friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't mean we can't exercise compassion toward him. It does mean that we don't act toward him like we think he's okay spiritually. Right. Because that's that's the worst thing we can do to him. Exactly. To confirm him in his unbelief and, and to make him think that he's okay with God, even though he's denying something this important, that's not charitable. No. You go from then a minimal Christian fellowship, which I'm glad you explained, because when you read a heading in a book saying minimal Christian fellowship, it sounds like, it sounds completely different than what you describe. And so it's it was interesting to read through that, and, and, uh, but then you go to a maximal Christian fellowship, which also sounds different than what you describe. Yeah, the the labels might lead you to think it's going to be exactly the opposite of right. what, what it turns out to be. You got maximal Christian fellowship. Are you saying I can't have any more fellowship with this person than X? I'm not allowed to to become closer as a brother in Christ than X, and, and that's not what you you said. So. No, remember. Fellowship, the word fellowship, koinonia, mm-hmm. simply means something that is held in common. Okay, We have, as Christians, genuine fellowship with one another because we hold something in common, and that something is the gospel. If we don't have anything else in common, at least we have the gospel in common, mm-hmm. and that gives us a minimum of fellowship with one another. But there's more to Christianity than just the gospel. And this more is part of what Paul was getting at, for instance, in Acts chapter 20, when he's, he's uh, coming down from, from Greece, he's headed to Jerusalem, he's going by the, uh, the seaport of, of uh, Miletus, which is near to Ephesus, and he sends word to Ephesus and has all of the Ephesian elders come down and meet with him. 
And one of the things that he says to them is that his conscience is clear because he's been careful to, to announce to them all the counsel of God. Well, I think all the counsel of God is exactly what God wants his people to know. Certainly, the whole counsel of God includes the gospel, and, and the gospel is, so to speak, the most central element of it. But there's a lot more to the counsel of God than just the gospel. This is where we get into non-essential doctrine. Well, the question becomes essential to what? Right. They are not necessarily essential to being a Christian. To take an example, there are Christians who are amillennial in their eschatology. Other Christians are postmillennial in their eschatology. Other Christians are premillennial in their eschatology. Those I judge to be important differences, but they're not differences that determine whether an individual is a Christian or not. Right. In spite of those differences, we still have at least some level of Christian fellowship because we're, we're genuinely committed to the gospel. We hold mm-hmm. the gospel in common. But we have more in common when we hold one of those eschatologies together. Sure. Now, of course... I'm I'm not presuming to answer the question right here as, as to which one is the correct one. Pick right. whichever one you like. Yep. It, it would be the case, if that is the biblical eschatology, whichever one you choose, if that is the biblical eschatology, we would all have a greater degree of fellowship if we could all agree that that was the biblical eschatology and we were all committed to it. So the fact that we disagree about these eschatological systems means that at some point our fellowship is less than it could be. It ends up breaking down. Mm-hmm. Now, suppose you're committed to premillennialism. Now you've got another question to answer. If you're a premillennialist, when does the rapture occur? Does it occur at the beginning of the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, at the three-quarter point in the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation? These also are differences, and, and they're still relatively important, but they're not nearly as important as the differences between millennial systems. Still some importance there. To the degree that we disagree over those, we're also going to be living somewhat differently. I I happen to be a pre-tribulationist. Most of the pre-tribulationists I know are are living, or at least think they should live, and feel guilty if they don't live, (laughs) as, as if Christ could come tomorrow. And and so that implies a certain mode of planning your life. On the other hand... It also implies, uh, essentially, that you're premillennial. Well, at, at this point, we're, I, I think the various m- tribulational options are all premillennial. Yeah. So that's that's not the difference. This is why I say these differences are less important than the sure. millennial but differences. We're kind, of, we're kind of, we're taking... Uh, doctrines and kind of splitting them into subsets. Yeah, let's, let's put it this way. Is eschatology ever fundamental? Is it ever essential to the gospel? My answer is yes. Jesus is coming again. That's essential. Which all views are going to agree all, on. All Christians are going to agree. Jesus is coming again. He is coming, as, as the, the, the great confessions put it, as the creeds put it, he's coming to judge the quick and the dead. Mm-hmm. If he's not coming to judge the quick and the dead, then we have no reason to be saved. Because there's nothing we have to be saved from. So this is fundamental. Millennial questions are less important than that. Mm-hmm. They're still important. Pre-mill, amill, post-mill. 
it still matters, but it doesn't matter as much, nearly as much, as the question, is Jesus coming again? Now, if you happen to be pre-mill, then you've got this other set of choices to make. Pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib. I think I saw one guy who had a system that was both pre-wrath and post-trib. Okay. He, he had the rapture occurring like three months down into the millennium somehow. <laughs> okay. I don't even remember how he defended it now. <laughs> these, these questions are not nearly as important as the millennial question, mm-hmm. but they're still somewhat important. They're important doctrinally and they're important practically because they imply different ways of living. So to the extent that one of us is pre-trib, even, even though we're all pre-mill, let's say, to the extent that one of us is pre-trib and another is post-trib, that's going to create a tension between us, some degree of tension. Right. There's going to be something that we don't hold in common, and so it's going to impair our fellowship at some level. Mm-hmm. If, if I'm a pre-tribber and you're a post-tribber, which I don't think you are, but no. suppose you were, <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily feel obligated to come and help you build your bunker. <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm being a little facetious there. <laughs> right. But you, you understand, you wouldn't necessarily be obligated with, with, with this urgent sense of, you know, how would I feel if Jesus came tomorrow? Well, if you're post-trib, you know that's not going to happen. Or mm. at least you believe that's not going to yeah. happen. So there, there are different emphases that are apply, implied by these different views. And, and, the way that we emphasize these things creates some strain or tension among us and keeps us from having the fellowship that we might otherwise have. Now, let me, let me change the scenario here. One of my best friends, maybe my best friend in the entire world, uh, is just leaving the presidency of a Presbyterian seminary and assuming the deanship of another Presbyterian seminary. I love this guy. I know he loves me. We pray for one another's ministries constantly. I want him to succeed. He wants me to succeed. Our, our fellowship is sweet at the personal level. But we also know there are certain things that we are not going to be able to do together. He, well, you're he, getting into... He, I, well, he wants to baptize babies. I was just going to say... I can't go there. You're, you're getting into uh, the almost divisions that that create denominations here. This is exactly what denominations are, and this is the genius of denominationalism. Mm -hmm. So many people think denominationalism is a terrible thing. It's not. It's a wonderful thing. The genius of denominationalism is that it gives us a way of organizing separately so that each of us can obey God in the way that he he believes the word dictates. Mm Mm-hmm while at the same time not forcing us to denounce one another as non-Christians. He's a Presbyterian. He believes that, that it is the obligation of Christian parents to have their infant children baptized. It's a moral issue with him. I'm a Baptist. I believe that it's always wrong to baptize <laughs> infants. We cannot possibly pastor we cannot possibly be elders or ministers of the word in the same church and both of us obey his conscience right so for the sake of obedience to the lord we are willing to recognize that we will be in separate churches there are some things we can't do together but at the same time that's not going to block us from loving one another and from doing the things together that we can Mm -hmm. you understand Mm -hmm. so 
we, we, we aren't this yet enjoying maximal Christian fellowship. Right. There's more that we could have, but we'll take what we can get right now. This is how we have conferences with John Piper and, and John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul all exactly. at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so you're, you're putting a Presbyterian and a Baptist, <laughs> and, you know, a, a charismatic Baptist, a charismatic Calvinistic Baptist, uh, you know, on the platform together, and, and MacArthur's about as anti-charismatic as you can get. How, how can they do this? Well, the answer is that their platform is being defined around the things that they hold in common. And when they come to that platform, they don't carry those other things with them. They, they stick to what the platform is for. Mm-hmm. Now, they all know the differences. And even publicly, they'll jab one another about the differences in a friendly in a fun sort way, of way. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's not bad. That's, in fact, I think a very healthy thing. Mm-hmm. But... If, if one of them seriously tried to co-opt the conference to promote the difference, it, it would Probably be... wouldn't get invited back. <laughs> it would be profoundly damaging. Yeah. As I'm reading through the book, I'm reading... First of all, I thought this was interesting. I know that this is quite a series. I learned since, since your book that this is a you know, common oh, the, thing the Zondervan... series? Right, yeah. that the, Zondervan likes to do this, and I, I'd never encountered it before. And I like it. It's, it's great to hear different views from different people on what they actually believe rather than you know, I think before the show we were discussing how I'm re- like learning about amillennialism from right. an amillennialist as a uh, premillennialist myself and and I'd always heard about amillennialist amillennialism from premillennialists and rather than listening to their strawmans I I like yeah. that so something tends to get lost <laughs> in the translation right right so I I really appreciated that uh that take and and I'm going to do some looking on Amazon to find other uh, books in this style because I, I really like it. It's, I'm probably going to grab the one on eschatology, having mentioned amillennialism and wanting to learn what the other views believe from their own mouths. But I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, you and Al Mohler, and I found it was interesting. And I know the editor kind of lumped you two together. It's, 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 it's like four camps, but it's actually two wings of each of two camps. Yeah, kind of. And, and, and I kind of picked up on that too. You know, I, I, I read yours, and I really agreed with a lot of what your essay had to say. And then I read Al Mohler's, and same thing. I, I agreed with so much of Al Mohler and almost put myself kind of between the two of you. And and then, of course, I get to Stackhouse and, and Olson, and, and, of course, I'm disagreeing with a lot of what they have to say. But it's probably important to, to talk about some of your differences because, you know, I agree with so much. Why would Al Mohler not call himself a fundamentalist or you not? fit into the confessional evangelicalism. Uh, of course, part of the problem would be just be the stigma of the name fundamentalist <laughs> anymore. Uh, you know, as, as you noted earlier, there's a lot of baggage that comes with that name. Mm-hmm. But actually there is, uh, I, I would say, a fairly real difference between us. To, to understand the difference, though, we're going to have to take a step or two back. You remember when we were talking about how Christianity is like a circle and the edge of the circle, the boundary is the gospel. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm saying that Christianity is, in an important sense, edge-bounded. Uh, it's, it's a bounded set, although I think it's also centered. It's bounded by the gospel, centered on the whole counsel of God. And I think that Al would agree with that. As, I think that's how he presented it. He yeah. brought up in the book the center-bounded, bounded, and centered, and, and he would say he's a center-bounded. And, and I think he would agree that to the extent that we have differences within the circle that limits our ability to fellowship with one mm-hmm. another. But we, there, there is one difference 
that he and I weigh very differently. We, we judge it, I think, fairly differently. You go back to the idea of the boundary. The gospel is the boundary. Mm-hmm. Where he and I would agree is in saying that anybody who's outside that boundary should not be recognized as a Christian, and we should not extend Christian fellowship to that person. We agree at that point, but now... But yet you also seek to bring that person in, we, we into do. the circle. We do, we, right. you know, through, through witness, through whatever. But now imagine another person, different from Al and me. Mm-hmm. This, this person is still an evangelical. He's still inside the circle. But he says, I don't think the boundary is what you think the boundary is. I'm willing to reach across what you think is the boundary and to extend Christian fellowship to some of those people outside. Mm-hmm. The classic example of this approach, and, and I'm, I'm not at all trying to beat up on the man here, uh, but th- this, this is just, he, he really typified this approach, was Billy Graham. In, in his crusades from 1957 onwards, Billy Graham insisted upon being sponsored by people, featuring people on his platforms, asking them to pray, and, and sending converts into their churches, people who denied the gospel. Theological liberals who didn't believe in the virgin birth of Christ, for example, or Roman Catholics who denied justification through faith alone, uh, or Eastern Orthodox who denied justification through faith alone. He, he would extend to them the prerogatives of Christianity. He would extend Christian fellowship to them in order, I think, to gain a wider hearing for the gospel. Well, we're all in favor of a wider hearing for the gospel. I get that. Right. But fundamentalists thought that this was too high a price to pay, that, that by reaching across that boundary, you, you weren't denying the gospel, but you were, in a certain sense, betraying the gospel. And this betrayal, we, we thought to be, and still think to be, genuinely scandalous conduct. We, we think this is a 1 Corinthians 5 kind of conduct such that it, it's it's not none of us i i don't think any of us would say that we don't believe that billy graham is is a genuine believer or for that matter a, a, a preacher of the gospel through whose ministry thousands tens of thousands maybe hundreds of thousands have come to jesus christ and we rejoice in that. Mm-hmm. but having said that we think that by reaching across the boundary what he has done is seriously seriously wrong and a betrayal of the faith so now the question becomes not just what do we do with people who are outside the boundary, but what do we do with these people who actually erase the boundary or, or who try to make it a dotted line, like they can duck outside of it every now and then and mm-hmm. pretend that those people out there are Christians. You remember when we talked about maximal Christian fellowship? We, we said that there are some some differences that are bigger and some differences that are smaller. Mm-hmm. We fundamentalists think that this is one of the really big differences. That, that this is probably bigger than the difference between pre-mill and post-mill and amill. It's, it's right. bigger than that because it's a difference that affects the gospel itself. It doesn't deny the gospel, but it affects the gospel. And, and so we think that at least in terms of formal cooperation, 
there is very little that we can actually do to participate with a person like Dr. Graham. Now, of course, he's off the scene now. Right. Uh, you know, he's, he's not active in ministry. And the point isn't the man, Billy Graham. The, the point is the practice. And this, I think, is where the difference between somebody like me and somebody like Al is going to occur. Okay. I'm, I'm going to say that what Billy Graham did was really bad. I'm not saying Graham was bad. I'm saying what he did was really bad. It hurt the gospel. And therefore, my ability to cooperate in fellowship with him is going to be severely limited. Al is, is going to say, yeah, it was bad, but there are other things you need to take into account, and I'm not going to limit that cooperation nearly as much as you want me to. I'm, I'm going to continue to make common cause with somebody like that. So, for example, when, uh, when um, Billy came to Louisville, one of his last crusades, uh, Al was a co-chair of, of the crusade. Now, actually, uh, Al insisted that the sponsorship of the crusade be limited to gospel believers. I think it's the only time that Graham has agreed to that since 1957. Wow. So, you know, Al had an effect even there. And Al, to be fair to him, is going to be very quick to point out that there's more to the story to be told with somebody like Billy Graham. Because, for example, during the big battle within the Southern Baptist Convention, in which the conservatives essentially took control of the convention and then they took control of the seminaries, including the one over Al, which, uh, over which Al presides, Southern Baptist Seminary, the conservatives couldn't have done that. I would say, except with the support of Billy Graham. And and so uh, Dr. Moeller would say, you've got to credit the man with that. You, you can't treat him like he's just all bad. Well, I agree, you can't treat him like he's all bad. I don't want to treat him like he's all bad. He's a mm-hmm. brother. He's a brother in Christ. And and he's my senior. He's, he's an older man. Um, he's been around the block once or twice. The Lord has used him in ministry. I acknowledge all of those things. Having said that, I think that that difference puts a much more severe strain on my ability to work publicly with somebody like Billy Graham than Al would say that it does. And therein lies the difference between us. Okay. Um, One thing I wanted to ask you also, before we get too close to the close, was in a lot of ways uh, evangelicalism in the book is, is almost sold as synonymous with Christianity. As if, like, I think it should be, mm-hmm. because Christianity is bounded by the gospel. It is it the gospel. Be and and evangelicalism is mm-hmm. the gospel. It is bounded by the gospel. So I would argue that really those two terms should be virtually interchangeable. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, that's not the same thing as saying that all genuine Christians are going to be identified with the evangelical movement. Right. Um, you know, there, there are plenty of people who believe the gospel and preach the gospel, like, like gospel believing Lutherans, for example, aren't usually or typically identified as part of the evangelical movement, mm-hmm. even though they are orthodox in their theology and they preach and teach uh, the, the gospel. Sure. So yes, hypothetically, Christianity, evangelicalism should be interchangeable terms, but as long as they don't just designate theological positions. They also designate parties. Mm-hmm. And uh, as long as they designate parties, things get a little mixed up. 
of course, the whole point of writing a book is that the, the term evangelicalism is is quite muddy. It's hard to define. But another approach that, that was taken was people talked about kind of the 20th century history. And this, uh, Billy Graham, you mentioned, has a strong focus on what people use to define evangelicalism. Uh, people talk about Christianity today. Uh, you talked earlier about this the separation early in the 20th century between fundamentalists and and, and liberals, ev- yes. evangelical, quote unquote evangelicals, you know that there was this uh, kind of split where some took one name and uh, some took the other name. Yeah, yeah. Do you have time to talk a little bit more about that history? Kind of sure. What sure. went through that 20th century? Well, there there are two defining moments for fundamentalism. The first defining moment is around 1920 and then mm-hmm. on through the 1920s when the fundamentalists realized that their denominations and other organizations had been captured by theological liberals who deny the gospel. Sure. So, of course, at that point, you, you've got a choice. You, do we fellowship with gospel deniers or do we do something about it? Mm-hmm. And if we're going to do something about it, what do we do? Do we stay in and try to throw them out uh, or do do we pull out? Well, Fundamentalists first tried to stay in and throw them out, and it didn't work very well. Uh, in fact, I think the only place that that ever actually has worked is later on in the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, so most fundamentalists ended up leaving the denominations. But evangelicalism, what's the history behind that term? I mean, okay. what, I mean, it can go back as that, far as Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and whatnot, but then... Several of the authors talk about Christianity today. What what is Christianity today? I mean, I'm 34, so I mean they've been around longer than I have. Especially when you consider I've been a Christian for 13 years, not 34. What is the connection there with Billy Graham and, and Christianity today, which you know a lot of evangelicals today call Christianity astray? <laughs> well, what the connection really comes in in the wake of the fundamentalist controversy. Mm-hmm. at the second defining moment for fundamentalism. Because you've got fundamentalists who have pulled out of the denominations, but you've still got a lot of Christians, gospel Christians, who stay in the denominations. And ultimately, those two kinds... And it, what, I mean, together they believe the gospel. Sure. The difference is, how soon do we have to get out? How long can we stay in? Right. Ultimately, those two branches develop into two divergent movements. The, the, the branch that says we can continue to have some kind of fellowship with or make common cause with people who deny the gospel becomes, in 1947, what is called the New Evangelicalism or Neo-Evangelicalism. Uh, whereas the group that says, no, we, we are putting up a wall between ourselves and liberalism, absolutely no cooperation, absolutely no organizational identification, no Christian fellowship, that group is what becomes fundamentalism, properly speaking. It's out of neo-evangelicalism that virtually all of today's evangelical movement has developed. Now, of course, at at that time, it's not as if you were either a fundamentalist or a neo-evangelical. There was a big middle group of undecided people. Mm -hmm. But over the process of years, for a variety of reasons that we don't need to go into now, that big middle group tended to trust the neo-evangelicals more than they trusted the fundamentalists, and they tended to gravitate in that direction. 
So, so that today, for example, even though somebody like Al Mohler or Mark Dever theologically has a lot more in common with me than they have with, let's say, Roger Olson, mm-hmm. their, their pedigree comes on the same side of the fence that Roger's comes from. They, they've, de- they've developed along those lines, and they've sort of grown back in the direction mm-hmm. of fundamentalism. Um, so, so mainstream neo-evangelicalism has has developed into a variety of different phenomena today. So that's that's from 1947 coming forward. The the crucial point that that really drove the wedge between fundamentalism and the rest of the evangelical movement was Billy Graham's 1957 uh, New York City Crusade. Uh, 1957 was an important year because of that crusade. It was an important year because of the founding of Christianity Today, which became the official organ of neo-evangelicalism, so to speak. It, it was an important year because of an article that appeared in Christian Life magazine, actually in late 56, that, that uh, defined changes that were taking place in evangelical theology. There was a lot that occurred in 56-57. And this, this division between the evangelical camp and the fundamentalist camp has never really healed ever since then. Now, working back from that, both fundamentalists and other evangelicals would trace their roots before the fundamentalist controversy back into a broad American evangelicalism that that comes out of the Great Awakening with Jonathan Edwards. It comes through the Second Great Awakening with, for example, Timothy Dwight, uh, comes through the the uh, layman's prayer revivals of the 1850s and 60s, uh, comes through what some people have called proto-fundamentalism in, in the, uh, oh, say the 1880s through the 19-teens. So there is a, a sort of a developing American evangelicalism that, that really just amounts to Christianity in America mm-hmm. during that time. And it's, it's out of all of that that fundamentalism emerged in one direction, neo-evangelicalism emerged in another direction, and eventually everybody else had to decide where they were going to sort it all out and end up. Most of them decided they were going to go with neo-evangelicalism, or at least be identified with neo-evangelicals rather than with fundamentalism. Being somewhat naive to the history, I just thought the whole discussion of Christianity today was interesting because it, it seemed to be that it was almost... The, the sense I got is that evangelicalism, or as you call it, neo-evangelicalism, is almost defined by this magazine. To a very large extent, that is true. Not, not only by that magazine. Neo-evangelicalism began as a, uh, a small cadre of intellectuals in the late 1940s. You've got Carl F. H. Henry, you've got Edward John Carnell, Harold John Ockengay, and the, the founding of Fuller Theological Seminary, Harold Lenzel, a handful of men who take an evangel- who form this evangelical seminary with the idea in mind that they will be solidly for the gospel, but they are not going to be separatists. Um, it, in, in fact, Carnell, in one of his books, wrote that he had seen theological liberals who gave more convincing evidence of devotion to Christ than many fundamentalists he had known. So... You know, he's distancing himself from fundamentalism on the one hand, but embracing theological liberals on the other. 
there, there were tensions there, but because it was just an academic and intellectual movement, it didn't gain a lot of traction in the popular sphere. The, the real explosion came in 56 and 57. And, and basically, Billy Graham is the one who moved this conflict into front and center in the evangelical world. And, and one of the unfortunate effects of Graham's methodology through the years was that it forced people to take sides one way or the other. And, and there were people who deliberately used it to force people to take sides. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's where that division okay. comes from. And we've, we've never got over that division. <laughs> that's insightful. It's like I say, I'm, this, this whole podcast, I've been doing it, I kind of mentioned before we got started, but I've been doing this for four years. It's, this is actually the first episode of year five, uh, number 49. And it was always kind of focused that because I'm a layman and I'm kind of learning as I go, that um, this is my learning process. The podcast, I sit down and talk to somebody who knows the subject well. And you're, you're not a layman. You're a believer priest. A believer priest. That's right. I like that. Uh, but I, I'm kind of bringing an audience in to learn with me and, or to, to kind of solidify what they have learned already. So I, I always appreciate that little insight into the things like the history of 20th century evangelicalism. Yeah, and I'm, I'm trying to describe it in ways that I think both sides would agree with mm. here. Uh, you know, obviously I've got a bias. I've, I, I've got a dog in this fight. <laughs> yeah. uh, but our conversation here isn't about winning the argument. It's right. about trying to help people understand why things have developed in the way that yeah. they did. Right. You know, if, if Billy Graham were here, he would give you all the reasons that he thinks he was right to do just what he did. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm I'm convinced that he was acting in the integrity of his heart. I, I don't think he was deliberately trying to do anything wrong. I think it was wrong, but I think he genuinely believed it was the right thing to do. Right. So we're kind of getting to the close, but uh, before we do close, I just wanted to ask if there's anything else that you'd want to uh, add to what we've talked about with the spectrum of evangelicalism or the fundamentalist view, anything, anything at all you want to add. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> okay, that's that's quite all right as well. I thank you so much for taking some time on a Monday night to come into my smelly office. Um, <laughs> just painted yesterday. I'm remodeling and creating a more podcast-friendly studio here. That probably works to your favor. I probably said more while high on the fumes <laughs> than I otherwise would have. <laughs> but then I had to think of the questions through those fumes as well. That's true. So it was kind of a little give and take on well, thanks so much, and and uh, I, you know, I hadn't mentioned it, but I met you three. I mean, it was almost four years ago. I think I'd have just about started the podcast when I joined Civil Air Patrol. Okay, um, you're the chaplain at our squadron, and that's kind of how we met. And always enjoyed sitting in on your your talks there. It's a little different because it's a secular audience, but uh, always at, uh, very enlightening. Yeah, ever in, since in, in the senior meetings, some fascinating <laughs> conversations. I haven't been to many cadet meetings, but uh, I, I, I've always had in mind I'd love to have you on, and I've been thinking about you know, what can we talk about. And uh, you you shared your book with me, and I thought it was a great topic. And I thank you for the book and the topic and for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Hopefully, we can do it again sometime. I'll look forward to it. That wraps up episode forty-nine. Uh, thanks again for listening. The book, if you're interested, is called Four Views on the Spectrum of Evangelicalism, and I would highly recommend it. You can find an affiliate link at the website 
not only to get a copy, but also to help Echo Zoe Ministries as well. That link as well as show notes, including a detailed outline of the discussion, references to scriptures mentioned in the show, and additional resources can be found by going to echozoe.com slash 49. So check back in with us in June. Lord willing, we'll be back again for the semi-centennial episode number 50. 